Listen to the living and life-giving word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple filled with smoke. I cried out, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not set their mind on what is false and who do not take an oath deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, those who acknowledge the truth in their hearts and have no slander on their tongues, who do their neighbors no wrong and cast no slur on others, in whose eyes vile people are despised but who honor everyone who fears the Lord, who keep their commitments regardless of the personal cost, who lend money without usury and do not accept the bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for we are the temple of God. As God said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we may be holy and unblemished in His sight and love. In Christ, the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, washed by the cleansing of water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any such thing but holy and blameless. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the sight of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
let's throw off everything that holds us back and slows us down and the sin that so easily tangles us up and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Endure the hardship in your life as training discipline. God is treating you as his children. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you're not legitimate children at all. God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do not be shaped by the dominating desires that used to influence you when you were living in ignorance. Instead, like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in everything you do. Lord, may your May we allow your word to point our eyes to see, to inspire our hearts to want, and empower our wills to become everything we were created to be holy, even as you are holy. In spite of the times and the ways that we assert or try to convince mostly ourselves that there's nothing about me that I would change, every single one of us here has a voice inside of us that whispers, maybe screams, I know that I could be or should be a better person. There's some things about all of us that we would change if we could. There's some ways that we need to develop and to grow. And it's not just at the, at the skill and ability level, the competency level. It's at the heart level, the character level, the being level. Some of us actually started coming to church or coming back to church because something in us said, you know, I know I need to be a better person and Maybe I need God's help to do that. Well, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that this should be, and I, I pray can be, that place for you. But the bad news is sort of multiple and complex. Number one, what you'll experience here is a whole lot of other people who are at the same place you are. We've not yet become everything we could or even should be. Church is not a place of people, of perfect people, although... Sadly, too often, many of us might come across as if we think we are. 
Maybe that's disappointing to you, but maybe that might also be okay. You might fit here. Better than you know. But the really bad news is that the bad news is worse than I want it to be. What I really need is not just a few tweaks, not just a hug from God to make me feel good. What you may hear is that the bad news about you is worse than you're wanting to believe. But what I hope you hear along with us, with that is that the good news is, well, the good news is actually way more powerful, more life-giving than just a bit of advice on how to tweak things. It's about a whole new way of living, a whole new kind of me. It really is possible for my story to be changed radically, permanently, for the better. We're looking this month at what we say are our core values, the heart of what we are. We're seeing how our core values actually flesh out what we call this all-in kind of life that we really want. Uh, last week we talked about our, our first value, that, that being all in is surrendering ourselves into God's Word, to its perspectives and, and to its directives. You know, we, we focus a lot on those directives, don't we? Just, just tell me what to do and, and I'll do it. I'm in. But it's way more powerful than that. The Word of God is, is a story. It, it claims to be the story the story that makes sense of who I am, who God must be, and how I can become the person I know I was created to be. And by God's grace, as I surrender into it, will one day become that. And that leads to our, our, our teaching for today about our second value, which we call transforming good news or transforming gospel, which means that as we surrender into God's story, we will actually be allowing him to change our story. We don't have to live in this it-is-what-it-is kind of hopeless defeatism. We talked about God's Word last week, and, and we have to remember, coming out of that, that, that there's actually four ways that this idea of Word is used about God in the Bible. First of all, God's Word is the Word that actually speaks things into existence. Genesis 1, he says, let there be, and there was. When God speaks, reality is created. And that is what should help us understand this statement in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 where, where it says, um, what does it say? My words will not return to me empty. You know, sometimes we tend to think that, we tend to present that, that means, well, all we have to do is, is read God's word to people and God's going to use that word because he says it won't return to me. No, it's, it's not talking in Isaiah about the written word of God. If you look at it in the context, it's talking about when God speaks something and he makes a promise, it's going to happen. Because he has spoken it, it will happen. God's word is a creating kind of word. Another way the word is used in the Bible is about the Bible itself. The, this book is not just man's words about God. It is God's word. His will 
to and for humanity. This is where we get the perspective and the directives that we need. And then a third way of the, the word use, word word is used, is of Jesus himself, the ultimate, climactic, final word of God to, to us made real and fleshed. It is who the entire story points to. In John chapter 1, the, the, first, the first line of the introduction to John's account of Jesus' life was in the beginning, was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The word, he says, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The fourth way the word word is used is when it talks about the gospel, God's good news, which is, which is a summary of who Jesus was to us and for us. The gospel is a summary of the entire meaning of the story. Jesus did not just come to give us advice. He came us to be and bring good news from God. News that if we understand it, we work it into our minds and hearts, will actually transform our lives. What did we say surrendering to God's word is? We said it's surrendering into its perspectives and directives, but directives are so shitty unless we get a grasp on, on some of its perspectives. A perspective, first of all, of the reality about me that needs to and can change. The good news is not only good, or it is only good when we recognize the reality of how bad the bad news is. As, as Tim Keller says, the gospel, the good news is this. We are way more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. There's way more to change than I want to see and admit to. But at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I'd like us to see this good news today in light of the God team, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, putting all of their resources, throwing all of their weight into making it possible for you and me to change our story. That's what it is. Uh, LaDonna, had the, my wife, had the wonderful privilege a number of years ago to being part of a $100 million project mandated by the premier of the province. It was going to happen. And, and he mandated that Northern Health put their resources and he would get the money to make it happen. And it did. All of the resources to make it happen. The gospel is all of the resources of the entire Godhead making it happen so you and I could have a changed story. Let's take a look at what we see when we see God the Father involved in this. From God the Father, we get a vision of what could be, what should be, and how far we've fallen from that. It's what Isaiah experienced when he saw God. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a lofty throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, let's just think about what we are meant to hear when we hear that word, holy. Holy literally means set apart. It, it comes from the verb that means to cut and, and to cut and separate and 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 separate to a special place. A cut above. A cut above when it comes to God that is breathtaking. 
and, and awe-inspiring. And out of that literal meaning, it came to have the connotation of being pure. Just like 18 karat gold is, is more pure than 10 karat gold. It is more holy than 10 karat gold. Who wouldn't choose 18 karat gold over 10 karat gold? Or over a substitute? And Isaiah's response in seeing this awe-inspiring, breathtaking vision of God is, Oh my goodness, I am toast. Because I've been exposed to the Lord Almighty, and I know I don't cut it. Why does Isaiah have that response? Because I know what he knows what humanity is creating for, created for. We were created to be a cut above, a breathtaking, glorious cut above the rest of creation, to be in God's creation, a physical, material reflection representation of a holy God, to take all of the goodness of God packed into the world and, and harness it and channel the energy in it to, to support more life and become more productive. The question as the creation process is finished is this. Will humans, the icons, the image of God, the physical representations of God's will, His purposes, His character, will we accept our role? Will we trust the God we are to image and live in Him, under Him, with Him, in the fullness of who we could be? Or would we ruin this glorious opportunity and define good and evil so it's centered around me instead of God? Use it to make me feel good, to make me look good, apart from trusting to and surrendering to God. And you know the story of the garden. We did not. To use the metaphor from last week, we did not surrender to the reality of the wave that God was creating and ride it with the glory of a great surfer. We tried to change the wave. We didn't accept the wave. And the wave crushed us and put us into a spin from which we have never recovered. And this vision of a grand and holy God that Isaiah sees, although it was intended to draw us toward it with wonder and awe, becomes an image that repels us, partially because darkness can't exist with light. And we're dark, partially because it reminds us of what could have been, what should have been. It's tempting to say, you know, that's such a negative message. Sometimes we come to church and say, you know, it's just a bunch of rules, a bunch of negative messaging. I don't need that. And, you know, sadly, I, I, I hear you that that's how it sometimes comes across. But I also wonder if the reason we hear the negative messaging is because we do not want to come to terms with the reality about me. And there's no point in coming to terms with it because there's nothing I can do about it anyway. When we say he's trying to make me feel guilty, hold it. Guilt, true guilt, is not a feeling. In the way God tells a story, true guilt is not a feeling. It's a reality we need to come to terms with. The picture is as simple as this. In the in, in book of Romans, chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the God we were created to image. About 40 years ago, people began to notice 
that many people who rose to a leadership position, first they were observing it in women, but later they found out this isn't a women's thing. It's, it's universal. Many people who rise to a leadership position feel as if they're not qualified to be there. They actually feel like frauds, phonies. It became known as the imposter syndrome. And no amount of affirmation, no amount of success, no amount of self-talk can change how they feel. It just is. That's why, as we've said before, it only was when I discovered that this was a very common thing among pastors when I discovered, I, I was able to be open about that one of my recurring dreams for years was that I'd stand up here in front of people naked. I'd wake up here naked. Could it be that we feel that way because inside of ourselves there's this vestige, this remnant of awareness that, that we are part of this all who fall short of the leadership role in creation that God has given us. And no amount of focusing on me, no amount of accepting myself for who I am, no amount of trying to force other people to accept me for who I am is going to change that. And it's why deciding to try to do God can just complicate the problem because when I truly come to terms with the God who is, the God who is, well, God, it's a reminder of my own shortness, lack of holiness. But in the core of my heart, I cannot lose the dream. I know I was created for something more, but I tend to settle for less, and I even flaunt my lessness because that's me. No, it's not you. It's not the real you. It's not the real you you were created to be, and it doesn't have to be the real you you are. There's this interesting word picture in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, when it, when it talks about our life being holy, it, it's, a, it's a word picture, and it talks about us as, as vessels, as, as, well, as pots and instruments, as containers. It says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use and some for dishonorable or ignoble, as the New English translation has it. Now, LaDonna and I love to do hospitality. We love to share our home with others and, and enjoy a good meal together with people, a good tasting meal and a well-displayed meal. One of our joys together as a couple is to just spend the day creating and the evening hosting that kind of a meal. And, and we have here some of the, the vessels of honor out of which we sometimes serve, groups. Some of them are quite expensive, like this Swedish crystal bow we got almost 40 years ago for a wedding present. Which, at the time, this boy from the bush thought was absolutely useless. But it's come to love because I married up. I did. And I've been pulled into, in a little way, the value 
the beauty of these vessels and honor. Some of them are expensive. Some of them are just simple Costco versions, but with some elegance. We love serving food in these vessels of honor. It elevates even a common meal to something special. Sometimes we serve hamburgers and hot dogs in our vessels of honor. What would happen if one day LaDonna asked me to set up the serving counter and I didn't want to take the effort of reaching way to the top shelf and dragging down the box that has one of these vessels of honor and I took the lazy way out and I thought to myself, no problem, we, we have a vessel on the lower shelf that's easier to reach that will hold food just as well as one of these vessels of honor. When Paul is talking about a vessel of dishonor, this is the kind of vessel he has in mind. Really, seriously. A vessel, as the net translation says, for ignoble use. I could come to the kitchen and say to LaDonna, hey, no sweat, I rinsed it out. <laughs> but LaDonna's a nurse who has had exposure to, to exposure to these vessels of honor. And a nurse leader who knows the research on bacteria in hospitals. Would you think it's just a funny joke? If you came to my house for a Thanksgiving dinner and this is what the turkey was served in? Seriously. Do you think it'd be cute if you find your, the preschool child you're babysitting drinking from the toilet bowl? Listen, folks, what Paul is saying is that we are created to be vessels of honor and so often we live and treat our bodies and our existence in a potty bowl kind of way. He goes on to say, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Some of us are here this morning are thinking, you know what, I, if I just clean myself up a little bit, rinse it off out on the outside, I'll be a little bit better person. Or we don't even realize it, but we are putting on some pretty dark glasses as we clean up our image and look in the mirror. And we're saying, see, it's not too bad. Some of us here this said yes to Jesus, who in God's eyes has made us a vessel of honor, but we have a huge tension in our hearts because we know we are not living up to our calling. We know we're just faking it, and the way we're living that out, and one of the signs we're doing is that is we become oversensitive when there might be any hint from someone that we might not be making the grade in some way. And we become angry when we get what we don't deserve. Oh, we don't get what we do deserve. We are destroyed when says somebody gives a hint of something that might be not totally up to snuff about us. We become jealous of people who seem to be getting what we're not getting. And another thing happens. We give ourselves, all of ourselves, to lesser dreams. Our possessions begin to possess us we enter relationships 
that destroy us. Some of us want to do something about it. We're working hard at cleaning the container to cleanse ourselves. What is dishonorable is not just to keep on scrubbing ourselves until we bleed. I need to become a new kind of vessel, and that's where the bad news becomes good news. The real God, who has a holy standard, also has a holy love, a love that is a cut above any other kind of love we could ever see. A love that matches his holiness. He does not overlook my unholiness. He pours out his holy wrath on himself. And so God the Father becomes Jesus the Son, the real God, becomes part of his creation. The Son of God becomes a Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. In Jesus Through Jesus, my status has been restored. Not because I earned it, but because the holy love of God provided. If I go back to the original plan, put myself under the one who has won me back, I will be a vessel of honor. Why did Jesus die? You know, we we know the right answer is, well, he died to pay for my sins, right? Well, yes, Jesus' death paid the price of my sinfulness, but that's only the foundational part. That's not the visionary part. In the book of Colossians, it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Why? To present you to God as holy In his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, why did Jesus die? To make you holy. Not to give you something to work for, but to give you a status to work from. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. That's how we need to understand it when Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not a vessel of dishonor, but a vessel of honor. And to surrender into the story is to accept the reality that I am not in myself and never can be who I was created to be, but in and through Jesus, if I say yes to him, I am, in God's eyes, the vessel of honor in my heart I know I was created and called to be. In paying for my sin and accepting me in this inner circle of the beloved God, Father, God, Son, God, the Holy Spirit, God does not see me as I see myself in the mirror, nor the me I try to hide and hope others don't see. He sees the me I have become in Jesus. He sees a different person, a vessel of honor. He sees me, and he sees Jesus. I had an experience this week that was nothing shy of, well, weird, actually. I have a friend, Ken, who was involved in the movie industry in Edmonton, and this summer he told me about a movie that was being produced by a film company from another country, a a country whose mainstream movie industry may or may not rhyme with Hollywood. The movie um, 
is a story about an independent movie from that country that made it to the Oscars. And so parts of the, which I understand is sort of based on a, on a true story, but um, parts of this movie, most notably the Oscars part, had to be shot in North America with a North American audience. And for various reasons, they chose Edmonton and the Windspear Center to shoot the scene from the Oscars. Several weeks ago, my friend Ken called me up and said, hey, how would you and LaDonna like to have an experience in my world to, to be extras in a movie set? Members of the audience at the Oscars. No money in it, but uh, just it'll just be an experience. All you have to do is to get dressed up in gala-like attire and clap and laugh at the appropriate times. And we said, cool. That would tick off the unique experience box. And so this past Wednesday... LaDonna and I went to the Oscars, all dressed up in our finest. As we walked into the backstage entrance with a group of people, I was, I, I was just sort of walking with LaDonna, and all of a sudden, standing in front of me was this person from another country, handed me a little piece of paper, and he says, here, can you read this? And I said, yeah, that's English, I can read it. He said, I like you, that's you. And I said, What? He said, take this, read it, and, and memorize it. And he took me, separated me from the hoi polloi, put me in a little special area where there was other people who were actor wannabes. And, and, and I said, what? I sat there and, and went through a few experiences, and, and, and I actually had no idea what was going on. It was, it was rather surreal, and even as I was thrust onto the stage with the lights and the cameras and came on, uh, told to walk here and do this, and then give, my, give these lines, I assumed that I was the substitute, the sort of the fill-in for the real guy, uh, because this was shooting audience scenes. This wasn't shooting the, what happened on stage. And so they didn't need to shoot what's happening on stage. So it would be just the audience. And so I was just the fill-in because, because they didn't want to pay anybody. Um, didn't want to pay the actor to be doing it. That's, that's what I thought was going on. After the first few takes, I thought, oh, I don't know what this is, but whatever it is, I might as well just get into it and have fun with it. And so I did. As the night wore on, I had some of these foreign crew members come up to me and say in broken English, good job, really good job, really good job. And I thought, well, okay. And, uh, and then they held up their smartphones, and, and they wanted to take selfie, selfies with me. <laughs> okay. Finally, at 10 o'clock, they dismissed the extras, and as I was going off the stage, the director said, no, no, not you. We need you to stay. And they set up these two tracks and then they put on that tracks a big tripod with wheels and on top of that this big camera and it was the it was the camera on tracks that they could pull up and do the nose hair shots you know the, the close-ups and, and I thought oh my goodness this is real I had become the main character in the opening scene of a movie for which the previews are already being shown, I saw one on the internet, I was the presenter of the Oscar. <laughs> it was so surreal. It, I mean, the next morning, I mean, I still don't know whether that's real, but it happened. This next morning as LaDonna and I were sitting together, drinking a morning coffee, trying to figure out what happened, why me? <laughs> She says, 
we don't even know what this movie is about. What if it's a porn flick? <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I said to her, why me? I mean, I just walked in the door and boom, I like you. That's you. I want you. And, and so I was being introduced as Steve Lopez. And so I thought, you know, maybe it has something to do with that name. That, uh, obviously, this Steve Lopez must have some name recognition in the region that's the primary market for this movie. And so we looked up the name, the name Steve Lopez, an American journalist who has done work in Asian countries for whom, well, you decide. It, in order to be an authentic Steve Lopez, they needed to choose someone at least who bore some resemblance to the real Steve Lopez. That's, uh, that's all I can figure. Maybe I'm wrong. But I do know that what I have when I accept Jesus' offer to surrender to him, to come into him and under him, God sees me as the real deal. Not for who I am in myself. He sees me for who I am in Jesus. Holy, a new creation. And now I have a new understanding of what it means to be authentic. Being authentic is not just being who I am and accepting myself for who I am. Becoming comfortable with it and justifying it and forcing others to accept that I have a whole new focus in Jesus. I can now become who I am in God's eyes. It's not about being who I am. It's about becoming who I am in God's eyes in Jesus. I am not just acting like Steve Lopez. I am becoming the authentic one that I was created to be Jesus, the new Adam. The new and true image of God. And so, as 2 Corinthians says, our job is to cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit. Or as Hebrews says, every sin that holds us back and weighs us down and trips us up. Everything bringing holiness to completion out of reverence for God. Yes, God does accept me for who I am. He does. But why? So I can accept myself for who I am? No, so that I can give myself to who He created and calls me to be, to the lifelong journey of bringing holiness to as much greater fulfillment as I can. Or as Andrew Murray McShane, the great old Scottish preacher, said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's the journey of transformation. In, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, by God's grace, I am what I am. You know how we read that? We say, oh, well, God created me this way, so I need to accept myself. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is just, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, he's laid out what the gospel is, the heart of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And so, what he's saying is that means by God's grace, I, he no longer is what he once was, a murderer, a persecutor of, of followers of Jesus. He is now a new creation. He has a new calling to live up to, a calling of holiness. By God's grace, I am what I am. By God's grace, my story has been changed, and I am giving myself everything. He says, I work harder than them all. In other words, he says, I am all in and giving myself to becoming the person that God sees me to be. We're not going to take the time, we don't have the time to look in the book of or 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, read that chapter to find out what 
He says, it's God's will that you sh should be holy. He names three areas in life in which we are to live out our holiness. Number one, in our sexuality. Sexual expression that reflects his design. Not sexuality in terms of the urgency, urges and identities we feel. Those are distorted. Give ourselves to pushing ourselves toward the design that God has. Loving relationships, reconciled loving relationships. Several years ago, I told you about how that very week in downtown Toronto, we had just bumped into someone just sort of randomly on the sidewalk that we had thought of as a friend, but with whom our relationship had become strained for three or four years. We didn't live in the same city, so neither of us had to deal with it, but we bumped into that person, his wife actually, and uh, we used it as the opportunity the next day when we got home to pick up the phone and call him. It was a bit awkward, but it was a try. He texted me later on and said he'd be in Edmonton. Could we talk? Could we get together? I accepted the invitation, and he responded back with another text that said this, I'd really like to turn the clock back six years and have a do-over, but I'm grateful we can pick things up again. Because we're both committed to holiness, we've let things go and restored our relationship, and during our missions month this year, as a sign to each other of restoration as brothers, I asked him to give the wrap-up talk on Sunday morning here. He said, I'd love to do that. That only happened because we were both committed to bringing holiness to completion out of reverence for God, even though the relationship had been frustrated. The third sign that Paul says of holiness, hard work. Work that wins the respect of others. How you work, what you put into it, regardless of how you feel, is a sign of how much you want to reflect the God who has put his all into making you the new image of God. Well, okay, really quickly, if that's all it is, all I've done is traded one weight for another one, a heavier one. It's not just enough to have a restored vision of holiness by coming to terms with the God who really is and was created to, I was created to be like. And then to accept the position of holiness I get in Jesus. In one sense, that is a recipe for disaster. Just because I get the position does not mean I can live up to it. And so the final piece of the gospel is the provision, the empowerment for holiness I have because the third part of this trinity becomes all in. When I come into Jesus, what I guess is the spirit of Jesus alive in me. In, in the book of John, when Jesus said he was leaving for this scene, his followers passed, panicked and, and he said, well, it's good for you if I go because if I go, I'm going to send you my spirit, not just to be with you like I am, but to be in you, to be in you. The spirit of God in me makes God's word alive for me and to me. And makes me alive to God's word. The spirit that convicts me when I start in a wrong direction. The spirit that points me in a right direction. The spirit that empowers me to do the right thing as I step out and do it. Not knowing if I'll make it. The spirit that affirms inside my being. You are a child of God. 
And by the power of that spirit alive in me, I can have a whole new view of all of those situations in life that I have seen as negatives, as against me, as God, what are you doing to me situations. God disciplines us, the word is training, for our good so that we may share in his holiness. We have the ability to choose how we feel and how we, how we feel about it and how we see pain. My wife and I have two different views of pain. You see, I've, I've spent a number of years in doing athletic type stuff. And so when I feel sore muscles, I'm thinking, oh, this is good. I'm being changed. When she feels sore muscles, she's oh. We have a different view of pain. We can choose that. By God's Spirit in us, as we cooperate with Him, we can leverage our pain for His story, get His perspective that even this pain is muscle pain training me for holiness. Let's wrap it up. Worship team, come forward. Is it time, maybe again, for you to allow God to change your story, to take one next step in changing your story? What is the all-in step that you have thought about as we've talked this morning? You've thought about it. What is it? A song that, they're going to do a sort of reprise of that song we learned earlier. We're all dying to live, but we're all scared to death. I love that line. You've been at this edge before and you've turned back because the vision of holiness to which God has called you seems so impossible, so unrealistic, but folks, the entire Godhead, the whole God team has put all of themselves in to making it happen for you and in you. There is a step that God wants you to take. What's it? What is it? What is your next? Do you need to talk to somebody about it and figure that out? Would you, would you step over the edge and do that? Do you need to perhaps engage in, in the Alpha course to find out, okay, is Jesus really as good as that? Or, or freedom sessions, you know, I've got some hurdles or barriers, got to get past. Do you need to figure out a relationship thing that will keep you from becoming who God wants to be? Do you need to make a confession to someone? What is it you need to allow God to change your story or even how you see your story? You see, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is this. It's not about what you do. It's about what the entire Godhead has already done to make it possible for you to change your story. Let's stand up. And if you can, join with our worship team as they sing this awesome, wonderful, all-in song.